Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, cheating on an Olympic scale. It's Ben Johnson! Ben Johnson does it again! Unbelievable! Ben Johnson, fastest man alive, fastest ever. Absolutely incredible! Cheated. Jones in front, Thanu coming through, Jones has got them brilliantly! It's 10-7-0, what a run! And so it is with a great amount of shame that I stand before you and tell you that I have betrayed your trust. Ostatchuk goes into the circle and she is the Olympic champion. Valerie Adams has added a sixth gold medal to New Zealand's Olympic tally after the Belarusian winner was declared to be a doping cheat overnight. As old as sport itself. In the 1970s and 80s, the former nation of East Germany enjoyed unprecedented Olympic success. They won more medals than any other countries except the United States and the Soviet Union. But when the communist era came to an end, the long-held suspicions of many observers were confirmed as it emerged that around 10,000 East German athletes had been involved in a state-sponsored doping programme. The rules aren't always fair. America's fastest woman, Shakari Richardson, poised to be a breakout star, today admitting she misstepped, testing positive for marijuana. It highlights one of the reasons why we worry about having our players play in the Olympics when decisions are ma- like this are made. But if there's one certainty in sport, it's that there will be some athletes who will cheat to get ahead, regardless of what they say on camera. If he's clean, would you consider this the greatest comeback in the history of sport? And I said, absolutely. Did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. And um, he said, but what if he isn't? Was one of those banned substances EPO? Yes. I said, then it'd be the greatest fraud. Today on the podcast, New Zealander David Howman, Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency for more than a decade, sits down with me to discuss how substances get banned, how injustices are addressed, and whether a sports world without doping is, in the end, an impossible aspiration. When you get definitive proof that an athlete is cheating... What's the emotion that goes through your body? Do you feel satisfied? Well, I don't have emotions when I deal with the anti-doping component because it's a job that I had for 14 winters up in Canada. Uh, and if you become emotional about it, you lose sight of what your job is. So I don't suffer from emotional response. I suffer from uh, job not being done properly. Is there a sense, though, of justice? Well, there is sometimes the uh, view that you take on behalf of those who are clean athletes Mm -hmm. uh, and you feel comfortable that you're doing the right thing for them to allow them to compete fairly. Uh, And that's one of the gists of the job, I guess, when you're doing the anti-doping work. Tell me a bit about WADA, its conception, when it started, why it was started, because it's actually a more new thing than I think people may realise. It's a little more than 20 years old now. It was formed essentially at the end of 1999, beginning of 2000. uh, And it followed the Festina debacle on the Tour de France in in 1998, where there were a lot of doping allegations. In fact, one team was banned from the Tour because it was shuffling drugs across borders and all sorts of things. Last night, Jean-Marie LeBlanc, the director general of the Tour de France, issued a statement saying that Team Festina, the number one team in the world, has been removed from this year's tour. 
Now, this comes on the heels of an admission by the lawyer for Bruno Roussel, the team manager, that there was a doping plan in place for the use of performance-enhancing drugs under strict medical supervision. There was a suspicion about how the Olympic Committee was dealing with issues. There was a meeting in Lausanne of governments and sport, and they decided they'd set up this independent body to look at the whole issue of anti-doping. So WADA was formed in, in 2000, uh, and I was appointed by our minister here to be on the initial board. I was the uh, head of the legal committee, and then I, be I was asked to go to Montreal to help sort out the office as a uh, COO, and one thing led to another, and I became the, the CEO. Would you say doping was more prevalent when you began at WADA or more prevalent now in 2021? Well, it's all guesswork, and, mm. and, and so to start guessing, you have to bear that in mind. Um, there's no material that would allow you to be factual in, the, in, in an answer to that question. Mm. Uh, you can look at the number of positive tests that are received on an annual basis and say not much has changed since the 1980s. There's about 1% to 2% of the tests which might be positive ones. But what you have to do if you're doing this work is say, what will the bad people do to get around the rules? Mm. And the bad people to get around rules are doing things more and more sophisticated now than they were 20, 30 years ago. Uh, they have a lot more money at their uh, ability to spend. They have scientists, doctors, lawyers, you name it, a heck of a lot more than the people who are out there conducting the anti-doping movement. So money talks, money brings matters, um, and the bad guys get information to tell them how to beat the rules. Asafa Powell, who is uh, 30 years old from Jamaica, one of the best runners we have ever seen, and Tyson Gay, a 100-meter champion, have both tested positive for doping. You mentioned just before that these operations are more sophisticated now than they may have been in the past. What does a sophisticated doping operation look like, and how is it sophisticated? Well, I don't want to give too many secrets away to those who might decide to dope, but sure. um, what has occurred over the years is, is things like microdosing. So you take a very small amount, which might give you an advantage for a short period, sometimes even uh, the length of the individual competition that you might be involved in, uh, sometimes even less. You might have a cocktail uh, number of substances so that there are several and and the likelihood of detecting one is therefore uh, minimal. Uh, you might also engage in blood transfusions, uh, in over-liquidating yourself before your tests, over-hydrating. Over uh, there, there are lots of pretty easy ways of beating the system. And so if you are running the system as an anti-doping specialist, you need to be alert to those so that the athletes that you have suspicions about and have information to might indicate uh, that they're doping, you test them at the right time. Uh, if you don't, you can miss that 24-hour clock or whatever it might be that the stuff takes to get out of the system. Mm. Yeah, so it's not so simple as you know just pumping someone up with human growth hormone and all of a sudden they're big and strong. No, that <laughs> the image of that frightens me a little bit actually Emil but look I, th I think at the end of the day those who are being sophisticated in their cheating will be just that totally sophisticated and those who are trying to get them will not be quite as sophisticated and therefore 
you know, you're, you're chasing your tail a wee bit. Let's talk a bit about the prohibited substances list. This has been in the news over the past couple of weeks. Marijuana is legal in Oregon, where Richardson was competing, but is banned in the hours before a race by the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, which says it can enhance performance, pose a health risk, and violate the spirit of the sport. Maybe one way of describing this is all illegal doping uses prohibited substances, but not all prohibited substances are illegal doping. Is that pretty much the case? I think I think what you're trying to say is not, not all prohibited substances are performance enhancing. Yeah, uh, and that would be accurate because performance enhancing or the potential to enhance performance is only one of the three criteria that would lead to a, a substance being on the list, and you have to satisfy only two of them to get it on the list. The other two are contrary or have the potential to be contrary to one's health, and the third one is contrary to the spirit of sport. So when the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, does this list, which it does on an annual basis, it receives submissions from any international federation or any government that wants to make a submission, considers them, and might put something on the list or take something off, but they will not publish the reasons for that. So you will not know, looking at a matter, whether it satisfies the first two or the second two or the first and the third criteria. You're not told that. Cannabis is interesting, uh, Emil, because it has a history. And I think it's worth telling people what that is because the IOC was responsible for the list before WADA was formed. Uh, And for a long time at the Olympic Games, the IOC itself relied on each individual sport at those games to have a list which mirrored theirs. What happened in 1998 was that a snowboarder from Canada tested positive for cannabis. Uh, He was disqualified from the event by the IOC. Rebliati's ordeal is, of course, the talk of his hometown, Whistler, British Columbia. Rebliati is a hero in this ski and snowboarding mecca. Oh, I tell you what, it'll stand behind him right away. He won, mate. It's irrelevant, you know, whether he gets the medal or they take it off him. He won. Lost his medal, uh, but he appealed, and he won the appeal because cannabis wasn't on the list for the Ski Federation. They are celebrating this morning in Rebliati's hometown of Whistler, British Columbia. The Olympic nightmare was over, and the news was almost too good to be true for the late-night party crowd at the Whistler Ski Resort. This resort is where Ross Rebliati lives and trains, and his supporters say the Olympic decision shows they were right all along. Now, that led to the IOC being a little bit annoyed because they don't like losing cases, Uh, and so they then said cannabis has got to be on the prohibited list, and it has remained there uh, ever since. WADA picked up the list or the responsibility for it in 2005 after the World Anti-Doping Code had come into being, and from there on in, uh, it has been on the list, but it has changed uh, in in two categories. One, it's now now only in competition, and secondly, you have to be full of it if you're going to test positive. You have to test. The the threshold is 150 nanograms per milliliter, which means you can't just be in a room where someone's smoking and you passively smoke, uh, and you can't sort of have had it in your body uh, like, you know, a week ago. Mm. It's it's a very big threshold, and since that was introduced in 2013, there have not been many positive cannabis cases. But there has been one very high-profile one recently... (laughs) 
Certainly has been. With Shikari Richardson. And, I mean, what are your... You've outlined the rules there very elegantly, and I, I thank you for that. Um, how do you kind of feel about this case? Is it a case of, you know, maybe you have sympathy, but the rules are the rules, and she knew the rules? Well, you've got to start from that position. You've got to start from the position that every elite athlete in the world knows these rules by now. They've been in place for you know, much longer than 20 years, so probably this athlete for her whole life. Um, and uh, every international athlete, particularly those from high-profile sports like track and field that she's involved in and from a country as, as sensible and clever as the United States, will have been educated fully. So they know what is on the list. They get re- told repeatedly what you can't have. They're told to check supplements. They're told to check or anything they put in their body. They're responsible for so it defies belief and common sense that she would not have known that it was on the list. So you then got to turn to say, well, um, did she record it on her doping control form? Because you're supposed to, when you give a test, say what you've had recently. And um, I'm interested to know what that answer might be. Uh, and if she did take it and she had an excuse, well... Probably too bad. The 21-year-old explaining the lapse came after learning her biological mother had died. I take responsibility for my actions. I know what I did. I know what I'm supposed to do. Um, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm allowed not to do. And I still made that decision, but um, not making an excuse or looking for any empathy in my case. But just, however, being in that position of my life, finding out something like that. Something that I would say is probably one of the biggest things that have impacted me positively and negatively in my life when it comes to dealing with the relationship I have with my mother. So that definitely was a very heavy topic on me. It's something that if you've recorded, then you're going to be able to rely on a little more in in terms of the evidence. If you don't record it, someone's going to say, why didn't you? People might say to that, I get it. I get the strictness, the stringency around prohibited substance and controls and things like that. But, you know, come on. But I suppose this kind of gets into what you were talking about earlier and the idea of to catch a crook, you have to think like a crook. And one of the key things for a crook in this area, presumably, is the idea of plausible deniability. Yes, and I, look, I think there are many situations where that's that's going to be viable because you just need to take the, one of the current controversies, which is contaminated food. Mm. And contaminated food can include steroids that have been fed to cows, for example. So, you know, there are some issues that have to be straightened out a little bit more by WADA. Um, But if it comes to THC or cannabis, um, that's a matter really for the politicians to determine Mm -hmm. as to whether they still want it on the list. Uh, And as I said, that's an annual review, and, and if people want to push it forward, then they can do that through their international federation or through uh, through their government. And I, and I should say here, the New Zealand government has quite consistently said uh, that cannabis should not be on the list, um, but they have been in a minority when it comes to uh, that submission. David, are you familiar with Goldman's Dilemma? I'm not. It's this um, piece of research that was done, I think it was also done in the 70s by a, a, a psychologist, I think it was, where um, it was a hypothetical thing. He went around and he asked a bunch of Olymp- uh, elite athletes, a very simple question, he asked, um, if I gave you a drug that would guarantee that you won oh, yeah. an yeah. Olympic, yeah, 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 that would guarantee that you won an Olympic event, but you would die within five years, would you take it? Mm. And I think 
more than half the athletes he asked said yes. There have been similar... I didn't realise that was the name of the test, but there have been similar uh, surveys done uh, at various times over the last 20 years, I imagine, uh, and it, it much higher than 50%. It was sort of one of the results was about 75% said, although I'm, I'll, I'll be dead by the time I'm 30, I, it was worth it uh, because I won the gold medal. And and I think there's an element of uh, bravado that comes from those sorts of reports because when you're young, you think you're invincible. Uh, and so if you take it, I'm not going to be the one that's going to hit. Somebody else will get it, so I won't die anyway. Uh, so that's that's the way you've got to sort of balance that a little bit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it scares the heck out of you because you think, well, people are prepared to take really big risks for the sake of glory, and um, those people are susceptible, therefore, to corrupt behaviour. Well, yeah, I mean, I found that amazing. I could not believe it when I read it. And as you say, you know, it's a hypothetical situation kind of thing. There are going to be people who are full of bravado who say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. But I guess the question here is, are you ever taken aback by the, you know, the lengths athletes are willing to go to for success and glory? No, I'm not. And and it's not that I was an elite athlete or anything. It's just that I think you get to know the lengths to which athletes train and, and try to, you know, excel. And, and they are doing that as a full-time job, and you've got to respect that, um, and you've got to understand what that means when they're in the top 10, 20, 100 in the world. It's a, it's a heck of an elite position to be in. There are not many around the place who can who can say that, and that's why it's it's such a big honour to be selected to go to events like the Olympic Games. It's just phenomenal the the quality and the excellence of of the sporting prowess that is shown at those places. And so if, you, if you're if you after something like that and you've been striving and straining and trying to get there and someone just offers you a little shortcut, maybe you're tempted to do it. And that's where we have to be very careful about ensuring the values that we promote in our country and, and many others are upheld when it comes to sport because people take shortcuts and examinations and, and all sorts of things nowadays and You've, you've got to understand that part of it is the pace of life and people trying to get up as quickly as they can. Uh, you know, it's not a long journey, it's a short one. And so they take, they take steps um, accordingly. But then you get cases like, I think it was the year 2000, um, Russian figure skater Elena Berezhnaya uh, had a world figure skating championship gold medal stripped from her because she took cold medication which contained pseudoephedrine. And to take your metaphor of, of exam cheating, you know, isn't that's a bit like someone getting kicked out of an, an exam because they were, I don't know, their eyes were flitting around the room looking at a clock and, and one of the supervisors saw them and decided that, that their eyes weren't on the paper so they have to get kicked out. Yeah, I wouldn't use that analogy. I, I would just say that that is what I would describe as inadvertent doping mm-hmm. um, where the principle that I raised I think earlier about an athlete being responsible for everything in his or her body uh, comes into play and so you've got to examine medicinal stuff, you've got to examine supplements so that you can say I did everything I possibly could to ensure that didn't have a prohibited substance in it Mm -hmm. and if you can't show that then unfortunately even with something like that you're going to lose the event result. So you're going to be disqualified. You might not get a a sanction, uh, but you're going to lose the event because you had that prohibited substance in your body. 
Um, and there have been many of those sorts of examples over the years. I, I remember a young gymnast in the Olympic Games in Sydney, the same sort of thing. Uh, a young woman, Radican, who, who had just that sort of um, scenario and unfortunately lost the medal. Andrea Radican has filed a lawsuit, it's being reported, against the International Olympic Committee. The goal is to get her gold medal back and to have her name cleared from what's being called the blacklist of doping. But a lot of people felt very sorry for her. Mm. And I suppose it's the fault of dopers that such a strict line has to be adopted. Well, it's, it's that, but it's also um, sometimes the pharmaceutical stuff is different from country to country. Mm. And I don't want to put any label on it, but you might have something in this country whether you go, and you go and buy it in some other country and it's got a different makeup. Yeah. And so you really do. And, and this is why I say at an elite level, you're going to have to be really, really careful about what you put in your body. Do you think, in a sense, do you think sport without doping is a bit like society without crime in the sense that it's something that we should aspire to but which almost by its nature is essentially impossible to achieve? You'll never win the war. You might win a few battles on the way and and I think you have to concede that when you start this sort of stuff. But you've got to look at what you therefore can do to reduce it. And so reducing doping is probably a better objective than absolutely ridding it. And the second thing is you have to do is make sure that those who are the real corrupt people in sport are removed. And I'm not talking about the athletes. This is where I'm talking about those who cajole or persuade or otherwise convince athletes to do things that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, and it's not just doping. It's, it's match fixing and, and all the other things you can do in sport that makes it, uh, makes it wrong. And so we need to look at that from that perspective and we need to do what we can to manage it the best possible way and and anti-doping programs are are part of it. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced today's episode and Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to David Howman. Matewa. Te